and welcome to the Revenants and Remains series of podcasts. This series is devoted to exploring the cult of architectural ruin in Britain, from the dissolution of the monasteries in the early 16th century, through the rage for ruined sentiment in the 17th and 18th centuries, and into the rise of modern notions of heritage and architectural conservation. Some of the topics to be covered include the making of Britain's ruins, how they came to be, or the early antiquarian fascination with ruins, literature and the aesthetic of ruin, the early tourist interest and experience in Britain's ruins, the poetry of the ruined abbey, the haunting of Britain's ruins, and the rise of conservation consciousness. This series is one of the outputs of a project entitled Exploring Britain's Ruins, Revenants and Remains at Five Northern English Religious Houses, which is a programme of public engagement that is run by me, Dale Townsend, at Manchester Metropolitan University, and by Michael Carter and Dominique Bouchard, both of English heritage, It's a programme that has been generously funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. This series of podcasts disseminates some of the research that was originally produced during an earlier AHRC-funded research project entitled Writing Britain's Ruins, 1700-1850, The Architectural Imagination. Some of the research was published in the volume entitled Quite simply that, Writing Britain's Ruins, a collection of essays that was edited by Michael Carter, by me, Dale Townsend, and by Peter Linfield, and which was published by British Library Publishing in 2017. We are extremely grateful to the British Library for permission to reuse some of that material here. For more information on our project, please see our website at revenantsandremains.mmu.ac.uk or follow us on Twitter at rev underscore and underscore rem or on Instagram at revenantsandremains. Today's talk is on the haunting of Britain's ruins, written and presented by Dr Hamish Matheson and Professor Angela Wright. Both are based at the University of Sheffield, where Hamish is a lecturer in the School of English and Angela a professor of Romantic Literature. Let's hear it from them. Hello everyone, I'm going to start um, our discussion of the haunting of Britain's ruins by quoting a passage from Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey, published in 1818. With all the chances against her of house, hall, place, park, court and cottage, Northanger turned up an abbey and she was to be its inhabitant. Its long damp passages, its narrow cells and ruined chapel to be within her daily reach and she could not entirely subdue the hope of some traditional legends, some awful memorials of an injured and ill-fated nun. So as she looks forward to her visit to Northanger Abbey, the family home of her suitor Henry Tilney, Jane Austen's heroine Catherine Morland embodies the excitement of visiting anything that had the appendage of Abbey attached to it during the Romantic period. Traditional legends had a tendency to gather round the ruined relics of religious sites, and where the Protestant Reformation loomed large in England, quote, some awful memorials of an injured and ill-fated nun, made so fashionable in the Gothic literature of the 1790s, such as in Matthew Lewis's Tale of the Bleeding Nun in The Monk, were desirable commodities. In what follows, the risks and rewards of investing British literary practice with the heft of a haunted past will be explored. There's a particular thrill of anticipation attendant upon the experience of visiting and writing about ruins. 
part of a poetic frisson of visiting a feudal ruined space lies in the prospect of encountering the restless ghosts of its former inhabitants. Revenants who were perhaps unjustly treated during their lives or who conversely were embodiments of awful tyranny can tell us about a past that is infinitely more terrifying than the present. Whether victims of violence and tyranny or perpetrators of the same, apparitions can reassure us about the rational present in their terrifying embodiments of the past. Britain's ruins are renowned for being haunted by spectral visitants. John Mason's Haunted Heritage, published in 1999, which covers reputedly haunted ruins in the care of English heritage, lists blue ladies, grey ladies, white ladies, cowled monks, and even a phantom leper who haunt the grounds of priories, monasteries and castles which they reputedly inhabited during their lifetimes. They are identified primarily by their former roles or class, and the legends surrounding them are just sufficiently tangible to arouse the curiosity of a traveller. The traveller may pause a while and attempt to see them. Authors of a Romantic period capitalised upon the appetite for ghouls and spectres that accreted around particular ruins, with titles that often incorporated or invented local legend. For example, The Grey Friar and The Black Spirit of a Y, a romance in 1810 by John English, epitomise this vogue for literature to combine local legend, ruined monasteries and ghostly presences known only by the colour of her cowls and habits. Situated in the Wye Valley, close to the ruined Cistercian Tintin Abbey that William Wordsworth had enshrined so memorably in his lines written a few miles from Tintin Abbey on revisiting the banks of the Wye during a tour July the 13th, 1798 in Lyrical Ballads, English's two-volume romance lured in its readership by its promise of a ghostly friar around the environs of Tintin Abbey. For Jane Austen's fictional reader Catherine Morland, as for many others, ruined abbeys and castles promise the potential, at least, to encounter the ghosts of the past. In the prologue to her Tales of Superstition and Chivalry from 1802, the Romantic poet Anne Bannerman foregrounded the imaginative potential of the dim regions of monastic night that could be found in Britain's ruined churches and abbeys. Yet, in their caverned, dark recesses dwells the long-lost spirit of forgotten times, whose voice prophetic reached to distant climes and ruled the nations from his witched cells. That voice is hushed, but still in fancy's ear, its first unmeasured melodies resound, blending with terrors wild and legends drear, the charmed minstrelsy of mystic sound, the roused, embodied to the eye of fear, the unearthly habitants of fairy ground. For Bannerman, the anticipation of encountering a ghost among the dark recesses of monastic night opened up fancy's ear. The imagination could provide the acoustics of the unmeasured melodies, even of the ghosts themselves, did not materialise among the ruins. Blending legends drear and terrors wild, mystic sound could then rouse unearthly habitants. Ghostly visitations then were a consequence of careful orchestration in the vision of Anne Bannerman, an orchestration that combined location, 
legend and imagination in equal measure. Tales of superstition and chivalry included dramatic monologues by a range of ghostly visitants, among others. There was, for example, the perjured nun, the dark lady and the penitent's confession. Bannerman's list of characters drew upon the conventions of local legend in their functional anonymity. The naming of Bannerman's spectral characters in tales of superstition and chivalry was deliberately vague, identified either by their Catholicism or by their station in life, the ghostly narrators were able to gesture towards a more feudal version of Britain embodied in the buildings that they haunted. They ventriloquised the past, bringing to life just a handful of the ruins of Britain. As Bannerman astutely pointed out to other authors aspiring to write in the same supernatural vein, however, local legend, from whence the tales of hauntings arise, must be combined carefully with a ruined building, a keen imagination and a sense of sound and atmosphere in the creation of a ghost. I'll now turn to the ghosts of Furness Abbey by way of concrete example. Before and after Bannerman, the combination of architectural ruin, imagination and attentiveness to atmosphere characterise the work of many authors who sought to evoke the supernatural in the ruins that they visited. When visiting the ruined Cistercian Furness Abbey in what was then the county of Lancashire in 1794 as part of a larger tour to the lakes, for example, Gothic romancer Anne Radcliffe underlined how the ruined structure of a monastery was intrinsic to our imaginative recreation of the monks who once inhabited it. And I quote, As, soothed by the venerable shades in the view of a more venerable ruin, we rested opposite to the eastern window of the choir, where once a high altar stood, and with five other altars assisted the religious pomp of a scene. The images and the manners of times that were past rose to reflection. The midnight procession of monks, clothed in white and bearing lighted tapers, appeared to the mind's eye issuing to the choir through the very door case by which such processions were wont to pass through the cloisters to perform the matin service. When, at the moment of her entering the church, the deep chanting of voices was heard and the organ swelled a solemn peal. To fancy, the strains still echoed feebly along the arcades and died in the breeze among the woods, the rustling leaves mingling with the clothes. It was easy to image the abbot and the officiating priest seated beneath the richly fretted canopy of the four stalls that still remain entire in the southern wall, and high over which is now perched a solitary yew tree, a black funereal memento to the living of those who once sat below. Here, Radcliffe artfully combines nature and culture through the repetition of the word venerable, suggesting how united they can lead the mind's eye to see the monks that formerly inhabited Furness passing into the church in procession. The solitary yew tree, which casts its shadow across the stalls where the monks once sat, provides a funereal memento of the monks in procession. Radcliffe brings the spectral monks back to life in her mind's eye by paying close attention to the visual and aural cues of nature. Sound plays just as important a role in the imaginative remembering of Radcliffe with the rustling leaves of the present combining with the solemn peal of the organ of the Abbey's past. Dating back to 1123, Furness Abbey had long been a major landmark of tours to the Lake District. 
Although Thomas Gray's journal of his tour of the Lake District in 1769, it was published in 1775 under the title of A Memoir of Gray by W.A. Mason, although this did not engage extensively with Furness Abbey itself, Gray's picturesque engagement with the Lake District clearly inspired Anne Radcliffe, as he detailed the points of Furness shooting far into the sea. Radcliffe drew quite significantly from Gray's journey in terms of her own itinerary and her own literary engagement with the area. Thomas West was another influence upon Anne Radcliffe, author of a widely cited and popular Guide to the Lakes of 1778. West first wrote the more localised but nonetheless extensive study the Antiquities of Furness in 1774. Radcliffe was inspired by West's historical attention to detail in her own lengthy account of Furness, particularly as she later drilled into the detail of the changing colour of the monk's cassocks from grey to the strict to white as the abbey became a member of the Cistercian order. West's more factual account, however, becomes endowed with the imaginative potential of a supernatural in Radcliffe's more literary treatment. In referring to the mind's eye in the passage that I quoted, Radcliffe invokes Act 1, Scene 2 of Shakespeare's Hamlet, where Hamlet confesses to Horatio that methinks I see my father before he encounters the ghost of old Hamlet later in scene five of the same act. It is an early moment in the play that points up the rich and fertile imagination of Hamlet as he anticipates his unearthly visitant. Radcliffe's citation of Hamlet, as she herself imagines a progression of monks, prognosticates and even sanctions the possibility that ghostly monks lurk in the ruins of Furness Abbey. Furness Abbey has long enjoyed the reputation of being haunted by one of its former monks, being nominated by the Daily Mail in 2015 as one of Britain's spookiest locations, owing to the monks being frequently spotted climbing a staircase and also walking towards the gatehouse before vanishing into a wall. Whereas Radcliffe sought to invoke the ghostly monks, however, others who engaged with Furness Abbey during the Romantic period in travel journeys and poetry did not draw upon or refer to its haunted reputation. In 1844 and 1845, William Wordsworth wrote two sonnets entitled At Furness Abbey. The earlier poem focuses upon the erosion of man-made pride as nature's ivy clasps the sacred ruin and the abbey's moulded walls are rejuvenated by blossoming flowers. The second concentrates upon a group of devout and humble railway labourers who visit the abbey and who sit and walk among the ruins, but no idle talk is heard. Instead, from one voice, a hymn with tuneful sound hallows once more of a long deserted choir and thrills the old sepulchral earth around. The Abbey remains resolutely sepulchral in the visions of Wordsworth, only reanimated by nature and fellow men. In and of themselves, the ruins of Furness Abbey speak of death and desertion to Wordsworth rather than of any reanimated ghostly visitants. It is the role of a living nature and men to animate the Abbey. This inevitably for Wordsworth, however, is no ghostly reanimation, but an organic and gradual process. The reasons for Wordsworth's conscience distancing of himself in these poems from the hauntings of Furness Abbey are numerous. Wordsworth's own self-conscious rejection of the Gothic began in 1798 with the publication of Lyrical Ballads, 
and remained a preoccupation throughout his career. In a later 1800 preface to that collection, Lyrical Ballads, Wordsworth sought to promote a form of poetry that was invested more in the common language of men than in the thrills and sensations of supernatural fiction. Particularly in these sonnets addressed to Furness, Wordsworth wished to promote the preoccupations of and reverence for the rail workers visiting the Abbey over the belief in the ghosts of any bygone feudal age. Wordsworth's recombination of The Quick and the Dead was shaped in part by the work of Robert Burns. The siblings, Dorothy and William Wordsworth, had made a study of Burns's work, conducting a tour in 1802 that included a summer visit to the Scottish poet's graveside. William Wordsworth was to write in an open letter of 1816 how, quote, the poet, penetrating the unsightly and disgusting surface of things, has unveiled with exquisite skill the finer ties of imagination and feeling. Those finer ties of imagination and feeling promoted intelligent sympathy for lesser mortals. The poem that he had in mind at that point was Tamashanter, which Robert Burns had completed in the winter of 1790-1791, and which first saw publication in the Edinburgh Herald on the 18th of March, 1791. It was hailed from its first appearance as one of Burns's finest performances, displaying, in the words of Burns's contemporary Alexander Fraser Teitler, a power of imagination that Shakespeare himself could not have exceeded. It was his opus magnum, as Byron had it, in a letter to John Murray of 1821. The reception of Burns's poem sheds important light on how his contemporary readers and near-contemporary reviewers took a tale of haunted space and ghastly goings-on, for while willing to praise the piece, the British literati struggled to place a tale of humour, pathos, credulity and the supernatural realm. Unlike so many treatments of the supernatural in the period, Burns's poem is unashamedly comic in tone, but not at all unsophisticated in purpose. The origins of its awkward reception lie in the origins of the poem's composition. The poem is commissioned by the antiquary Francis Gross, and having appeared in the Edinburgh Periodical Press in March 1791, it appeared in the second volume of Gross's two-volume Antiquities of Scotland that same spring. One of the ironies raised by the poem is the rather unremarkable quality of the building itself. When the Edinburgh magazine later published an engraving of Alloway's Kirk in May 1803, the accompanying text rather downplayed the building's significance. Quote, it is this ruin which Burns mentions in his poem of Tam O'Shanter, and from this circumstance alone we are induced to present it to our readers, more than from its external appearance, which is neither very picturesque or romantic. After a lengthy drinking session in the town of Ayr, Tam, the poem's titular hero, is very drunk indeed as he rides home on his grey mare Meg. His way will take him past old ruined Alloway Kirk. That building where ghosts and hullets nightly cry became synonymous with the poem and is itself framed by a darkling vision of a Scottish countryside. Tam traverses no pastoral retreat, no productive Georgic field or enlightened agrarian space. Instead, he negotiates a thickly painted scene of horrific folk memory. By this time he was crossed the ford, where in the snow the chapmen smoored, and past the burks and meekle stain, where drunken Charlie's brack's neck bane, and through the winds and by the cairn, where hunters found the murdered bairn, and near the thorn, abin the well, where Mungo's mother hanged herself. The poem will shortly reveal to the drunken Tam, Satan himself, the central figure of high Presbyterian moral will. 
but the width and eschatological reach of the Presbyterian Church of Scotland is quite beyond Tam. His focus is on the immediate and the local, on Mungo's mother, the Chapman, Charlie with his broken neck. This cast of characters is aggressively local in its being, these peers, fellows and contemporaries of Tam, so local as to require merely their first name or occupation at the time of their demise. Later, we will find Satan offered in this similarly familiar Old Nick. The landscape prefigures Burns' key spatial and temporal gestures in the poem, where the supernatural and the eternal are rendered local and absolute and bounded, bounded by a moment, an instant, by the four ruined walls of a very specific location, Alloway Kirk, South Ayrshire. One of Burns's most recognised techniques in the poem is the speed and precision with which he transitions between an elevated register that recalls the higher strains of 18th century verse and a more demotic Scots lexis. As Tam nears the church, it would appear that, quote, glimmering through the groaning trees, Kirk Alloway seemed in a bleeze. What's important here is the strong juxtaposition of simplicity and complexity of the local and the general. The complexity and dexterity of the alliteration, glimmering, groaning, and the rhyme across English and Scots lexis, trees, bleeze, is set against the reductive conclusion, it just seemed in a bleeze. Notice the continuing equivocation towards the building, it seemed rather than was. In the minutiae of verse, Burns takes the fabric of the building and punts the certainty of the actual fabric of Kirk Alloway towards an altogether more generalised conclusion, or at least holding position, that it seemed to be other than its rightful self. Further equivocation exists at the level of perception. Precisely to whom does the building seem to be in a bleeze? The obvious answer, given that Tam is our focaliser here, through his eyes we perceive the scene, would be Tam himself. Consider the tense, however. Just when did Kirk Alloway seem so? When precisely was it in a bleeze. The answer really cannot have been on the night itself. Imagine the line running, Kirk Alloway was in a bleeze. There is disjunction because of the word, even then a contraction, seem apostrophe d for seemed, a disjunction between the experience and the telling. If we want to imagine that it seems to be in Tam's retelling of the tale to the narrator, then we enter into all sorts of possible fictional realms and times of telling. Tam's experience, Tam's recollection of the experience, the narrator's imagination of how Tam perceived it, the narrator's deliberately reductive account for our benefit at the point of retelling, and so forth and so forth. All of which would be nitpicking were it not for the fact that Burns is quite deliberate in his strategy as he approaches the treatment of the ruined building's haunted space. To enfold an apparent simplicity of proposition within an accomplished and ambivalent poetic technique helps to create a sense of tension between the local supernatural event that is unfolding and a much broader sense of how literature must rest upon a broader base of a poetic accomplishment if it wishes to tell this tale. Just as the fabric of the locally haunted space has to accommodate wider tensions between the realm of faith and the sphere of the supernatural, so the fabric of the poem has to accommodate a tension between a simplicity of proposition and sustainable sophistication of verse. Reading a poem about a drunk man's perceptions can be fun, not so much simply listening to a man drunk. The agony of the poem over the use of the word seemed thus encapsulates precisely how and why Burns was praised for this performance, and why its low subject yet profound sophistication of telling the tale of Kirk Alloway wowed yet puzzled 
his peers and near contemporaries. Thus Burns introduces one of British poetry's most abiding haunted spaces, Kirk Alloway. Before we are allowed, as it were, into the building, we have to negotiate not only the contextual frame put in place by the countryside surrounding it, but also the interpretative frame put in place by Burns's sophisticated treatment of demotic perception. Tam's senses, which may or may not have gathered that something supernatural was in play, are about to be further enriched. But from the Kirk, quote, loud resounded mirth and dancing. Mirth, dancing, neither particularly sanctioned by the presbytery of air. Tam, peering into the church, quote, saw an unco sicht, an unco sight. Warlocks and witches in a dance, ne cotillion brent new fray France, but hornpipes, jigs, strath, spays and reels put life and metal in their heels. The Winnick bunker in the east there sat old Nick, in shape of beast, a towsy tyke, black, grim and large, to gee the music was his charge. He screwed the pipes and gart them skirl, till roof and rafters all did dull. Coffins stood round like open presses that showed the dead in their last dresses, and by some devilish cantrip slicht, each in his cold hand held a licht. The haunting of the church is deeply bathetic. What, asks the poem, do coffins freshly raised by Satan from the earth look like? The answer is, they look like open presses, like open cupboards. Ramming the astonishment of the supernatural into the profound mundanity of domestic storage by means of a deliberately blunt simile is another example of Burns's fashioning of the improbably haunted space as one only conceivable in the most quotidian terms. This effect is not just visual but oral. Satan offers no exotic cotillion Brent New Frey France to fill the space. The cotillion was a contemporary dance uh, that was particularly fashionable, but rather offers hornpipes, jigs, strathspeys, and reels. Kirk Alloway, represented here in the 1790s as Britain contested state legitimacy as well as a European and colonial future with France becomes a metonym for a much wider conflict between states of being and embodied values. Again, the local and the general are invoked by and contained within the profoundly haunted space of an unremarkably ruined church. The ruination of the space is both contrasted to and compared with the physical state of the dead who are dancing to old Nick's bagpipes. On the one hand, as we might imagine the undead to be, there are withered baldoms, old and droll, rig woody hags, would spain a fall. Witches, in other words, of the popular imagination, precisely the kind of elderly women burned, hanged and drowned by Britons well into the enlightened 18th century. Tam's eyes, or the telling of Tam's eyes, should one have begun to distrust the narrator's motives, are taken, rather, with a much younger member of the hellish legion, Nanny. Nanny has merely a cutty sark, a short undergarment, between her modesty and Tam's licentious gaze. Amidst the hellish company, it is Nanny who haunts the local memory, and Kirk Alloway in particular. There was a winsome wench and wally that night enlisted in the corps, lying after Kend and Carrick shore, for many a beast to dead she shot and perished many a bonny boat, and shook both meekle corn and bear, and kept the countryside in fear, her cutty sark of paisley harn, that whilst a lassie she had worn, in longitude though sorely scanty, it was her best, and she was vaunty. Ah, uh, Little kenned thy reverend granny, 
That sark she coughed for her wee nanny, with twa pun Scots, twas all her riches, would ever graced a dance of witches. The specificity is remarkable and local. The cutty sark, price, twa pun Scots, made by her grandmother from Paisley Harn, is short in longitude, not latitude, as it graces the dance of witches. Price, origin, coordinates. The material of this haunting is foregrounded. There is an absolute and concrete bearing to this apparition, conjured as it is, not within some indeterminate space, but within a poem that bears, in Francis Gross's 1791 Antiquities of Scotland at least, a precise visual representation. Alongside the image, we are asked to populate the church, represented in antiquarian daylight, with its midnight inhabitants. Kirk Alloway and his environ by night holds not the generalised thought of the undead, but teems rather with named witches whose scanty nightwear has local verifiable provenance. Enamoured of Nanny, Tam shouts his appreciation, all falls dark and Tam flees. The witches follow where many an eldritch screech and hollow. By jumping over a stream of running water, Maggie the horse saves her rider, the drunk, at the cost of her tail. The poem concludes with a phatic and homosocial moral, beware drink, and when in drink, beware women. The poem cannot conclude firmly, built as it is around such a stunning representation of the haunted space that is the particularity of Kirk Alloway. There is nowhere for it, or for Tam, to go in general, other than somehow away. Quite deliberately, Maggie the horse is left without a tail. Having passed Kirk Alloway, she, like the poem, lacks an end. I'm now going to turn to Byron's ghostly friar. That sense of ambiguity and of uncertainty, the thrill of the unexpected was furthered in verse by Lord Byron, perhaps recalling his 1821 assessment of Burns's Opus Magnum as he tackled the late cantos of Don Juan. Byron's depiction of a ghost in the so-called Norman cantos of a poem entertain both the scepticisms and thrills of the age in its insertion of the ghost of a friar. In Canto 15, Byron teased and tantalised his readers about the forthcoming ghost in Canto 16 of the poem, asking, Grim reader, did you ever see a ghost? No, but you have heard, I understand. Be dumb and don't regret the time you may have lost for you have got that pleasure still to come, and do not think I mean to sneer at most of these things, or by ridicule be numb that source of the sublime and the mysterious. For certain reasons, my belief is serious. In an age of increasing scepticism and anxiety about the way in which a Gothic romance had saturated the credibility of its readership, by overexposure to ghosts, the poetic voice in Don Juan discourages its readership from believing that the intention is to ridicule or sneer at ghosts and draws attention to the poem's own ghost in Canto 16 as a pleasure still to come. But while acknowledging the lure of a ghost as pleasure, Byron claims for himself that my belief is serious. Pursuing his reasons in the following stanza, the poetic voice claims, I say I do believe a haunted spot exists, and where? But refuses to disclose a precise spot, relying instead upon the supernatural as a source of the sublime and mysterious. Canto 16 of Don Juan 
takes place in Amundville Abbey, a fictional pile which was modelled closely upon Byron's ancestral home, Newstead Abbey. Amundville Abbey has a ghostly friar whom Don Juan encounters one evening as he prepares for bed. Vistanza's describing Juan's encounter with the ghostly friar in Canto 16 capture brilliantly the heady combination of curiosity and physical petrification that accompanies the encountering of a ghost. It was no mouse, but lo, a monk arrayed in cowl and beads and dusky garb appeared, now in the moonlight and now lapsed in shade, with steps that trod as heavy yet unheard, his garments only a slight murmur made. He moved as shadowy as the sisters weird, but slowly, and as he passed Juan by, glanced, without pausing, on him a bright eye. Juan was petrified. He had heard a hint of such a spirit in these halls of old, but thought, like most men, there was nothing in it beyond the rumour which such spots unfold, coined from surviving superstition's mint, which passes ghosts in currency like gold, but rarely seen like gold compared with paper. And did he see this, or was it a vapour? Once, twice, thrice past, repast the thing of air, or earth beneath, or heaven, or t'other place, and Juan gazed upon it with a stare, yet could not speak or move, but on its base as stands a statue, stood, he felt his hair twine like a knot of snakes around his face. He taxed his tongue for words which were not granted to ask the reverent person what he wanted. These stanzas are notable for their initial refusal to make light of Juan's encounter with the reverent person of a monk. No more than Burns's earlier poem had challenged the invocation of a reverent granny in Tamashanter. While they attest to what E.J. Clary has identified as the commercial potential of ghosts in the lines coined from surviving superstition's mint, which passes ghosts in currency like gold, from stanza 22, Byron's philosophical stance instead draws attention upon what we cannot know with the questioning of whether Juan does in fact see a ghost or a vapour. Rather than drawing from the well of scepticism and literary exhaustion of his age, as was his wont in many other cantos of Don Juan, Byron, like Radcliffe before him, chose to draw here from Act 1, Scene 5 of Hamlet. There, Horatio, interrupting Hamlet's encounter with the ghost of his father, is admonished thus, There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Byron plays with Hamlet's corrective stance in Ghosts in stanza 23, as a ghostly monk is described as a thing of air or earth beneath or heaven or t'other place. Although the phrase t'other place sounds at first dismissive in tone, the stanzas as a whole are characterised by uncertainty, hesitation and a refusal to ridicule or rationalise what Juan sees before him. The overarching impression of gravity lends this particular part of Don Juan a different edge, one which refuses to poke fun at belief in hauntings and revenants. The character who tells a legend of a black friar in Canto 16 of Don Juan is the Lady Adeline of Amundville. Her husband, Lord Henry, the sire of Amundville, jokes with a guess that Adeline is half a poetess and, smiling, begs of the audience to indulge Adeline's recitation of a legend. Byron makes fun of Adeline's charming hesitation as, with eyes fixed to the ground, at first kindling into animation, 
she begins to recite her lyric on the legend of a black friar. The target of a satire, however, is less the subject of a legend of a black friar and more of a gendering, artfully improvised recitation of such legends. Adeline recites, Beware, beware of a black friar who sitteth by Norman stone, for he mutters his prayer to the midnight air and his mass of the days that are gone, when the lord of the hill, Amundville, made Norman churches pray and expel the friars, one friar still would not be driven away. Though he came in his might with King Henry's right to turn church lands to lay, with sword in hand and torch to light their walls, if they said nay, a monk remained unchaste, unchained, and he did not seem formed of clay, for he's seen in the porch and he's seen in the church, though he is not seen by day. And whether for good or whether for ill, it is not mine to say, but still to the house of Amundville he abideth night and day, by the marriage bed of our lords, tis said, he flits in the bridal eve, and tis held as faith to their bed of death, he comes but not to grieve. When an heir is born, he is heard to mourn, and when aught is to befall that ancient line, in the pale moonshine, he walks from hall to hall. His form you may trace, but not his face, tis shadowed by his cowl, but his eyes may be seen from the folds between, and they seem of a parted soul. But beware, beware of a black friar, he still retains his sway, for he is yet the church's heir, whoever may be the lay. Amundville is lord by day, but the monk is lord by night, nor wine nor wassail could raise a vassal to question that friar's right. Say not to him as he walks the hall, and he'll say not to you. He sweeps along in his dusky pall, as o'er the grass a dew. Then gramercy for the black friar, heaven seen him fair or foul, and whatsoever may be his prayer, let ours be for his soul. These stanzas, composed and then recited by the Lady Adeline, are segregated from the rest of the canto, nestling in between stanzas 40 and 41. Their separation indicates the distance that the poetic voice wishes to establish between himself and their alleged author. Characterised by poor scansion and clichéd warnings about the ghost, their only interest lies in their telling of a violent tale of a Protestant reformation that displaces a black friar from his monastery. Replaced by a newly titled family, the black friar exists as a ghostly reminder of the Abbey's monastic past. Despite the questionable merit of the Lady Adeline's narration of this tale, this ghostly friar in the Norman cantos of Don Juan is not discredited. That is... Not until the voluptuous Duchess of Fitzfolk, having learned of the legend from Adeline's tale, is discovered at the end of Canto 16 to be masquerading as a black friar in her attempts at seducing the younger Juan. Despite the pathetic sense of the explained supernatural at work here, Don Juan ends on a note of teasing supernatural indecision. I leave the thing a problem like all things, the persona notes, ghost or none, twere difficult to say, but Juan looked as if he had combated with more than one. Though seemingly eradicated by the disclosure of the Duchess's amorous intentions, Ghostliness the following morning persists, spilling out into the rituals of everyday waking reality. Don June looks worn and worn, the Duchess pale and shivered. June's encounter with the ghost is thus curiously free from the contempt of the many other Gothic parodies of Byron's time, indicating 
But Byron's own professed encounter with a ghost was something, at least, in which he believed. Thus it is that the haunted ruins of Britain are our reward for becoming a literate and critical nation in the centuries following the invention of a British state at the start of the 18th century. The works here, in prose and verse, from Burns to Byron or from Radcliffe to Austen, helped to shape a second order of popular literary criticism brought into being during the literary period known as Romanticism. Consistently, they invite us to tease apart the voice that tells a story from the truthfulness of the tale. We're rewarded for recognising that only the most credulous reader of Tamashanter or Adeline's stanzas in Don Juan would take them at face value. It's in this sense that to call back into being the bygone inhabitants of Britain's ruins was and continues to be appealing, reassuring even. As all the texts above indicate, however, there are also risks in such a venture, the risk of inauthentic cliché, of searching for what was never there, or for Wordsworth, of misconstruing the world of sense as one casts about in memory for an irrecoverable past. As Britain emerged from the 18th century, the nation's haunted ruins came to offer authors and readers fantastic spaces for the expression of increasingly suppressed anxieties of class, religion, opportunity and nationhood. Never before had such spectral ground and haunted space been woven into the fabric of British literary identity. The haunting continues to this day. Thank you for listening to the Revenants and Remains podcast. In the next episode, we will hear Professor Marion Harney from the Department of Architecture and Civil Engineering at the University of Bath present on the topic of conserving Britain's ruins, 1700 to the present day. Please like, subscribe and share this podcast with your networks. Thank you for listening. This podcast is directed by Dale Townsend and produced by Evan Wilson and Marcus Hitayer. The sound art is by Gary Fisher.